Congratulations again to college seniors. Having been a parent of a college senior, I know how joyful that is for a parent. Having been a college senior, I remember that that moment well, feeling uh, very excited and exceptionally nervous about what was going to happen in the next few years, so I can appreciate that tension. Well, this morning, as you already recognize, we've come across this most treasured and one of the most familiar passages in the whole Bible. I mean, it's treasured because of its poetic beauty. It's treasured because of its singular focus on something that we all enjoy, and that's this theme about love. It's familiar. You just go to enough weddings, you know, you'll hear all are part of 1 Corinthians 13, read at a wedding. And it's read because you've got this couple here who are madly and emotionally in love, and the pastor wants to remind them of what love actually looks like, what it's defined by. And it's not primarily defined by emotions. It's certainly not apart from emotions. But he does a great job in verses 4 through 8, just giving a a great definition of love to this soon-to-be-married couple to help them Remember that it's a lot more about sacrifices than it is emotions. However, Paul's treasured words, Paul's familiar words here in 1 Corinthians 13, weren't originally designed to be heard at weddings. They were originally designed to be heard by people in a worship service. And let's try to remember the context of where we are here as we've gotten to chapter 13. Paul's written a letter to the Corinthians. He was the founder of the church in Corinth. When he left, they developed some problems, and somebody sent them, sent Paul a series of questions that they needed to need help on. So he sends back this letter, and it's really uh, chapter after chapter of corrective behavior or corrective beliefs. In chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, he specifically zeroes in on behavior and beliefs inside the worship service. He's talked about a number of different things, but in these uh, four chapters, he's saying, now let's talk about what's happening to you all while you're having a worship service. So he's zeroing in on that area particularly. And the primary problem with the church at Corinth is that when people, visitors, came in, they wanted to hear about God. They wanted to know about God. They wanted to experience God's glory. But when they came in, they left thinking a lot about the people and not very much about God. And that's because the people's behavior actually was blocking God's glory, if you can imagine that. So here, the, the one moment you're supposed to say, I'm, I'm focused on God, I'm, I'm forgetting about myself, maybe I'm forgetting about the world, I'm coming in to focus on God, and because of the people's hunger to be known, to be impressive, they got in the way of God's glory during the worship service by their behavior. So Paul takes them to task. He takes them to task in verse, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. Now, here in 12 and 13, he's talking specifically about how they're exercising incorrectly spiritual gifts. Paul knew the the mindset that was happening in Corinth, and he understood a, a poisonous mindset was developing inside the church. 
And that mindset was that the more spectacular gifts were getting elevated. And so as you came in and somebody had a more spectacular gift, they themselves got elevated. And if you had sort of an unspectacular gift or an unnoticed gift in the worship service, then you begin to feel like you were on the Christian JV squad. I mean, it's nice that you came, but, you know, you need to sit over there. And let's make sure we're promoting the people that have these spectacular gifts because it was a culture that was hungry for the spectacular Hungry for, for, for being known, for being seen. Can you imagine being in a culture like that? Hungry for being known and being seen. So they imported that outside character inside the church. And the spectacular gifts began to block the glory of God, meant to display the glory of God. And it caused those with unspectacular gifts to feel slighted. At its best, this mindset created a kind of caste system inside the church you walked in and you sort of immediately knew your place at its worst this mindset began to rank your spirituality maybe even question your faith oh you don't display that gift do you really know god i mean if you were like super spiritual you would you would definitely have this gift. And if you don't, then maybe there's something suspect about who you are, suspect about your faith. That's, that's the poison that's seeping inside the church. We don't have time to read about it this morning, but you could turn later to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and see what was happening. There was a group of people coming to the church, and they were referring to themselves as super apostles. Imagine that. There's a group inside the church calling themselves the super apostles. And the super apostles most highly valued the gift of healing. And their thinking went this way. If you're super spiritual, then you have a super big faith, then you don't get sick. Or if you do get sick, then you have a big enough faith to pray a prayer of faith and you could get healed. Now, now this poisonous thinking... It happens today. People believing, hey, if you really have a super big faith, if you're a super apostle, then you're going to have the kind of faith that sort of eliminates sickness from your lifetime. And if you happen to get sick, well, that's okay because you've got a faith. You've got a, a prayer of faith that can make you well. And if you don't have it, then what happens is the super apostles begin to wonder, do you have any faith at all? And these super apostles were beginning to call Paul's apostleship and his faith into question itself. Can you imagine that? They were stirring up the congregation to say, you know, Paul, he's got a sickness that he can't get rid of. Remember that? He prayed three times. And he can't get rid of it, so he must have some kind of something in his life that's blocking God's favor. Or maybe he's, he's a little off the reservation in terms of faith. So they're trying to put the Apostle Paul on the JV squad, if you can even imagine that. So Paul sees this, this seeping into the life of the church, and he wants to respond to this poisonous atmosphere. And he does it by writing chapter 13. 
Chapter 13 is his response to this kind of atmosphere that I've just been trying to describe to you. And he, let me just mention three ways he tries to attack, the, attack this poisonous mindset is he has a surprising beginning. Secondly, he has a singular focus in the middle, and that's the focus on love. And then finally, he offers this stabilizing adjustment. He has a surprising beginning. He has this singular focus, and then he ends with this stabilizing adjustment for these people inside the church. So let's look at those each in turn. You see the surprising beginning, beginning actually beginning back in chapter 12, verses 30, verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. He's been talked in all of chapter 12, and we talked about this last week. He talked about all kinds of different gifts, and he closes by sort of baiting a hook, saying, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I can show you still a more excellent way. And the way I envision this line here is like Paul is doing verbal judo on them. You know, you know if you're in martial arts, the, the idea in martial arts is you're trying to use the other person's momentum against them, if you don't know this. They, they lunge forward, and what you do is you grab them and you take their forward momentum, and then you throw them to the ground. And so Paul, I don't know if he knows martial arts, but he's getting these people who are hungry for higher gifts. I mean, you can just hear it. Higher gifts? Whoa. I'm, I mean, I'm moving forward. I'm leaning forward for the higher gifts. And he's purposely getting them to come in. And he's about ready to go, boom. And they don't even know it. But he's baiting this hook, trying to get them to lean forward and get them off balance with their thinking. So it's a very surprising gift. Earnestly desire be zealous. That's the Greek word. They're hungry for anything that's going to make them look good, so they're lunging forward. That's the first thing we see about this surprising beginning. The second surprise, you see it, uh, maybe you just didn't notice it because it's sometimes you, it's hard to see. Chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, he shifted from chapter 12, talking about you, to who? Talking about me. He's just about ready to throw him to the ground, and instead of saying you are doing all this, very genius. He says, well, let's just use me as the example. This is so great when you're having a conversation. It, it doesn't push the person into the corner. It says, okay, let's just say I've really messed up. I've really done this. You're, you're making yourself sort of the butt of the joke or the butt of the argument. And so it's very surprising. He puts himself in there. In chapter 12, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know you are the body of Christ. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And now he does something very surprising. He puts himself in the first person, I. The third surprise is he takes all the great gifts the Corinthians were most impressed with. Notice in these first three verses, tongues, prophetic powers, knowledge, great faith. And he tells the Corinthians, they all add up to zero without love. They are really off balance. If I have 
prophetic powers, if I have all knowledge, if I have the kind of faith that can move a mountain, they're all saying, yes, this is what everyone wants. And Paul is saying his equation is these four things minus one thing equals zero. And they are off guard. They are off balance. What do you mean if I speak with tongues of men or of angels, I'm, I'm just a resounding gong? Paul's not saying there's a, a special language for angels. It's a way of him drawing out an extreme. Now, you know, no matter where you are on the language scale, heaven or earth or anywhere in between, no matter what kind of language you use, if you don't have love in your language, then you're a, a noisy gong. And this is, this is for the Greek mind, it's an amplifier. In other words, you're amplifying a clanging cymbal. I mean, how enjoyable is that on your radio dial? An amplified gong, an amplified noisy cymbal. This to me is, and only a few of you know what this is, this is like screamo music. The, the college students, you know what screamo music is. If you don't know it, don't go look it up. It's not really not worth it. But it is a noisy gong if you're a 54-year-old man. It's just like, it's immediately going off. It's all there is. I just, zero tolerance for it. And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, guys, you, you, ha- you think you have this special language? It's screamo music. Nobody wants to listen to it. Why? Because you don't have love. You're missing this one ingredient, and because you're missing it, it doesn't matter what you're saying. No one's paying attention to you. It's amazing. Then this prophetic power and knowledge. Imagine having that, prophetic power and knowledge. The the Corinthians loved powerful speakers, especially well-educated, powerful speakers. Way back in the first chapter, you remember? The very first thing he addresses, some are for Apollo, some are for Peter, some are for Paul. They've gotten into these little cliques and saying, he's really the best preacher. He's the best speaker. He's got the most knowledge. I mean, you you really need to be a Paul guy or a Peter guy or an Apollos guy. So they hungered for this prophetic power and knowledge, very high value. And he says, if you have all this prophetic power and knowledge... Without love, it's zero. Now, I just want to say to Paul, I mean, it's not zero, is it? I mean, you didn't really mean zero, right? I mean, in the Greek, nothing means like something, right? No. You can have crystal clear doctrine. Without love, it's nothing. Love what one commentator said. Listen carefully. Prophetic power and knowledge without love is ministry. Prophetic power and knowledge without love is ministry. It's ministry to your illusion of self-importance. Oh, wow. Your thought that you're so smart... That you're the one who's got the special insight. When it comes without love, you are ministering to an illusion of your self-importance. 
The only thing that's being helped is your view of yourself. I mean, that is painful to hear. These people are really being thrown to the ground here. And in case they think, well, there's somebody in the crowd who's not into the whole, you know, I'm doing something great in terms of power, verse 3, what if you're at the opposite end? It's not how many gifts you have, it's how many gifts you've given up. What if I've given up everything? I'm not a gift person. I'm giving all that I have. I'm I'm just always giving myself away. I could even, I'd be willing to be burned at the stake for my faith. If you do all that, and even if your body is burned for this great cause without love, it's, it's zero. So these things had to be shocking and surprising to the Corinthians. He's, he's got them off balance. And so they're all leaning in now. They're all stumbling. And he's got their attention. And he's going to say, okay, the one thing I've said is you have to have is love. Now let me define it for you. And so he has this singular focus, which is our second point. This is the one gift everyone in the church has to have. It's not uniquely distributed to just a few And so as I highlight, I can't talk about all of these characteristics. As I highlight some of them, just think how important this characteristic would have been for the church at Corinth. Here you have a very metropolitan city that has a very wealthy class of business people and a massive population of people enslaved. And those two groups are coming into the church. You have Jews and Greeks coming into the church. You have males and females coming into the church. You have Greeks and Asians and Africans all coming into the church. Now imagine being in this church. Wow, I mean, what a tossed salad of people here. And in order for this church to move forward, it's got to have this one gift, love. And he's going to describe it. Secondly, if you're here and you're married... You're a married man. First, I mean, Ephesians chapter 5, you know it. Husbands, love your wives. So if you're sitting here as a married man, you can think of it as, I'm a churchman, and I need to think of it in that way, but I'm also married. And God's commanded me to love my wife, and Paul is going to give you some good uh, character Uh, qualities to look at and see if you're actually doing that. So everyone can be thinking from the church standpoint, and those who are married, like myself, can be thinking specifically about that relationship. First, love is patient. Great Greek word here called macrothumia. Macrothumia. Say that with me. Macrothumia. Just use that at the office tomorrow and be like, wow. Restrained desire. Patience is restrained desire. He's not saying you don't have any desire. You definitely are going to have desire, but it's going to be restrained. Or sometimes that part macro means long. You have a very long fuse if you're loving. You have an ability to to really restrain your desire. Your desire doesn't dominate. You, You understand that you have to restrain your desire for the good of another person. The the opposite is epithumia or over desire. 
And a lot of the times in the Bible, that's translated as lust. It doesn't mean, always mean sexual. It just means my desire dominates my, my, my actions. Everything I do is just immediately comes from my desire. A loving person has these desires, but he or she can restrain those. They don't dominate my actions because I'm patient. I have a long fuse. Love is not arrogant. The, the word here for in the Greek is the word for bellows. We've used this before. It's not puffed up. It's not a person who's always just inflating themselves to look better or to be noticed. Sometimes you might say or heard this said, you know, when an important person enters the room, they fill the room. You ever heard that? Paul is saying when a loving person enters the room, the room gets larger. Because they're trying to make everybody else better. They're not trying to enter a room and suck up the oxygen. When a loving person comes in, everybody gets bigger. When you're around these kind of people, when you find these kind of people, you do everything you can to say, would you be my best friend? Right? Because when you're around them, you feel ten times bigger. And that's what Paul is saying. This person comes into a room and a room grows. They don't suck up all the oxygen. They, they make everything grow because they're a loving person. They're not arrogant. They're willing to, to leverage their power and position for somebody else. Love is not irritable. Again, in the Greek, the word is sharp. Sharp. Here's the picture I got. When I was growing up, we had cats in our house. And I, didn't, I never liked to sleep with my cat uh, because my cat always wanted to sleep near my feet. And I would have a sheet on, right? They would sleep near my feet, and what would I do, unbeknownst to me, during the night? Move my legs. What did I immediately receive from my cat? My cat was so irritable. So sharp. I mean, it was one bump and Paul, you know, we're getting blood here. And I wonder if you're like that. One bump and the cloths come out. One person who jostles you. One time you're, you're not getting your way. One time your desire has to be restrained and whack, everybody knows it. That's what Paul is saying. A loving person, they can get bumped a lot without getting the claws out. Husbands. Can you get bumped a lot? Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Better translation, some of you have it in your Bible. It keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, man. It's an accounting term in the Greek. I'm not, I'm not a person who keeps a ledger. Oh, they said this. Okay, what date is today? 4-29, they said, that, oh, tomorrow. Yeah, okay. And then when I've had it, I open up the ledger. You know somebody like this? 
Not, not a loving person. Not an easy person to be around. See, a loving person, when something happens and it needs to be addressed, then they say it. Paul's not saying bury everything. He's just saying if you're a loving person, then you'll say something. You're not going to keep a ledger. Or you're going to say this isn't worth saying something about, right? So I'm just going to let it go. But either way, I'm not writing it down and I'm not waiting to sort of open up the accounting books on you. That's, that's the opposite of love. Keeps no record of wrongs. And then in this crescendo, verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. It's like this final piece of music. It All things means in a large way. Love bears in a large way. It believes in a large way. It hopes in a large way. It endures in a large way. The word bears is the word we use for, for roof or covering. Love is willing to cover over a lot of things. It's not trying to expose your fault. It's trying to, to, to lovingly try to cover over things. I think this is exactly what uh, Noah's some hand got wrong. He walks in on his father's nakedness. Remember this? And he could have just covered over it and not let anybody know. But instead, he went outside and started blabbing to his family. And his two brothers decided to cover over their father's problem. Love, love covers over. It, it makes sure that what's embarrassing doesn't get out in any unnecessary way. It endures. It stays under. It holds on. You know, no matter how weighty the problems get in the church, no matter how weighty your problems get in your marriage, you're going to stay underneath them. You are going to adore. You're not going to drop it. You're not going to say, you know what, I got tired. It got complicated in the church. I'm done. You're not going to say if I was a husband, it's a lot harder than I thought. I'm dropping you off. That's not somebody who's loving. And you get to the end of this list if you're like me and you go, how is this possible? I mean, this is a great idea. I'm not down on that, but... The reality, when I examine my own heart, when I examine my own relationship with the church or my own relationship with my wife, I say, how is this stuff possible? And the answer is you must have experienced this kind of love yourself first. You have to have your own experience with this before you can give it away. And as Christians, We have all experienced this kind of love. Even if you didn't get it from your mom or your dad or you're not getting it from your spouse, you have gotten it from Christ. And he has dumped this kind of love into your life in such a magnificent, powerful, overabundant way that you can then love one another. Consider Jesus' love. How, how patient is his love for us? How often did he have to restrain his desire for our good? He's just the opposite of, of arrogant. I mean, if anyone could inflate themselves, it would be Jesus. But he lowers himself. 
and he takes on the very nature of a servant. Jesus, of all people, leverages his power and position for my good. Jesus is not sharp. The worst kinds of people, like Paul Phillips, bump into Jesus, and he's forgiving. Jesus doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Jesus bears in a large way. His love covers our faults, and he endures. He's not going to drop me. I may let go of him. He's never going to let go of me. Amen? Every Christian should know this. Every Christian should have experienced this in a way so that when it gets difficult for you to do it, then you're coming out of a place that's already been fueling your soul. And when you've been loved in such a large way, then you can go love one another. Jesus' last commandment to his disciples. They're going to know you, love me. Why or how? Because your love for the other. In my research this week, I came across this great quote by Jonathan Edwards. Edwards, this, some people say, the greatest mind America ever produced. Certainly, arguably, one of the greatest theological minds. And he says this, what characteristic makes the church most like heaven? What characteristic makes the church most like heaven? His answer, love. Edwards was a strange man. He had such a prolific mind that all these thoughts would come to his head, and they didn't have notebooks like we might have today, so he would take any scrap of paper, and he would write pieces of a sermon or something on it. And sadly, one sermon we have preserved from Edwards was written on the backside of a bill of sale, And it was a bill of sale for a 14-year-old slave girl he purchased in Boston. Her name was Venus. Honestly, that's hard for me to put together. This great theologian writes a sermon about God on the back of the bill of sale for a black girl. And I just want to wonder out loud, how do you say love makes the church most like heaven as you purchase this person? And what it reminds me to remember to myself is it's very easy to say and maybe even mean you love one another. And sometimes very difficult To see how your behavior does not match your theology. And I wonder if Paul had come to Jonathan Edwards and say, Jonathan, all your great knowledge. Without love, you know what, brother? Zero. So when we're asking ourselves these questions, instead of just being down on Jonathan Edwards now. We, we want to look at ourselves 
If someone who's so in touch with the glory of God can have such a massive blind spot in what does it mean to actually love one another, then it's possible that I could have that blind spot. That I might be doing something that I just don't see right now, and I'm writing a great sermon on the back of something that I'm refusing to take a look at for myself. That's at least possible. Finally, Paul gives this stabilizing adjustment, these last few verses. The the Corinthians had mistakenly tried to build their church on what was spectacular and impressive. And Paul's adjustment, I think it hurts. I mean, we read it and go, yeah, oh, yeah, but I I think it hurt these people. I think it was an emotional hurt. Verse 8 As for prophecies, for tongues, as for knowledge, you know what, guys? Those are all going to pass away. Ouch. I mean, what an adjustment. I built my whole identity on prophecy, knowledge, and tongues. And he's telling me, you know, all that stuff is going to go away. The, The things you're so impressed with right now, which are good... When the perfect comes, when Jesus comes, everybody's going to be looking at Jesus, not your knowledge. When Jesus comes, you're not going to want or need or desire Paul Phillips to preach anymore. Amen? You're like, Paul, hey, you know, you were good for a little bit of time, but Jesus has showed up. So you don't need to stand up there anymore, brother. That's what he's saying. You people who are trying to get up front and crowd the front, when he comes, no one's going to notice you. So just be aware of that now. He's not saying, Paul, get off the stage now. He's saying, adjust your attitude. If all you knew of the Grand Canyon was a postage stamp, once you got to the Grand Canyon, guess what you would do with a postage stamp? Second adjustment, verse 11. When I was a child, mm, meaning Corinthians, your children, you spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I become a man, I'm giving up these childish ways. No matter how gifted and knowledgeable you are, Corinthians, when Jesus comes, you're going to look back on your current gifted and knowledge, giftedness and knowledge and think of yourself like a child. What an adjustment. And third, verse 12, no matter how keen your vision and insight is right now, the best that could be said is you're looking through a dark glass. The best you can say is you just know in part. But one day, there'll be a day when you're fully known and fully know Jesus. Paul's final line here. Church, here here are the gifts to build your whole life on. Here are the gifts to build your whole church on. Faith, hope, And love, these are the ones that transfer from this timeline into the next. And the greatest of these gifts, 
is love. Now, why is this so important for Christ Community Church today? There's a number of answers to that, but I would say, one, we're growing in number and diversity. And when you grow in number and diversity, you might want to insist on your way. I like to insist on my way. But if I'm loving as a pastor, if I'm loving as a husband, I'm going to have a restrained desire. I'm going to leverage my position and power for someone else. That's what love does. And over the last four months, I would include today in one of these, we average about 350 people that come to a service in a sanctuary that holds about 380 to 390 chairs. So as we look around and we look at the growth and we look at the programs and we look at our city, we think God providentially has put us here for such a time as this. And we can't grow in this current structure. And so in the fall, we're going to go to two services, hoping to open up seats for people to come either early or later in the morning. Now, what's Paul Phillips' preference? (laughs) Well, this is my, honestly, how could it not be, right? But I have to leverage what I have for people that don't know Jesus and don't know the Bible. And so that's, we can't insist on our own way. Now, we're going to be talking more about this as the summer comes around, but it, it's not accidental. Godless, God has put these passages before us right now so that we can look at this list of what it means to be loving and ask ourselves, is this, is this like me? And if it's not, it, I don't want you to try harder I want you to look harder at Jesus and allow that look to inform how your feet and your hands act. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we are so grateful for your word. I mean, we just scratched the surface here in 1 Corinthians 13 of what could be said. But it it is such a rich word that can influence our lives, inform our thinking, transform our behaviors, help us to to maybe make an adjustment in in our thinking that we too might be the kind of person who who says and means to be loving, but we, we have ways of operating that really are the opposite of what we say. And we don't want to be people who have great knowledge or spectacular gifts or a great program, and it's not loving. So would you kindly help us, kindly help us to make the adjustment as an individual, as a pastor, as a member here, as a church, to each other and to our city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.